Abram and his descendants become God's great object lesson in the world. They become God's witness nation of his greatness and his grace. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in South Lake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright. Have you ever missed a key theme in a film or book? How about neglecting to see something that is in plain sight? Well, you're not alone. When it comes to the Old Testament, many believers just don't understand this essential part of the Bible. Well, on today's program, Tom begins a new 12-part series titled, An Aerial View of the Old Testament. Throughout this series, Tom will take a 30,000-foot view of the Old Testament scriptures. You'll learn the history and message of these sacred scriptures and how they foreshadow and point forward to the most wonderful person who ever lived, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Today in part one, Tom begins our study by examining the key themes and historical moments in the book of Genesis. And Tom, before we begin, could you give us a hint at what we should expect from this series? What I really want us to do is get our arms around the Old Testament. As New Testament believers, we rightly spend so much time in the New Testament, but we need to understand how the Old Testament informs the New, how it sets up the story of the New. You know, the theme of Scripture is God is redeeming a people by His Son, for His Son, to His own glory. And the Old Testament tells us why that's necessary. It shows us in full, extreme HD as to why we need a Redeemer. And so we're going to see that unfold in every book and every story as the Old Testament unfolds. And so that's our desire in this series, is to say, let's make sure we understand the flow of the Old Testament's history so we see how it fits into the overall plan of redemption that culminates in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thanks, Tom. And friend, open your Bible now as we join our teacher here on The Word Unleashed. We often neglect those things that are the most clearly and visibly in sight in spite of their great value. When I think of the Old Testament and how it's often neglected, my mind goes back to a quote from Martin Luther, the reformer. He writes that when I was 20 years old, I had not seen a Bible. I thought that there were no gospels and epistles except those which were written in the Sunday postals, the publications of the Catholic Church. Finally, I found a Bible in the library, that's in the monastery, and immediately I took it with me into the monastery. I began to read, to reread, and to read it over again. Imagine, if you will, here is a man who's grown up in the Catholic Church. He's now 20 years old, and he's never seen a Bible. Not only has he grown up in the Catholic Church, but he's a monk and has been for a couple of years and never seen the Word of God. The book was hidden in plain sight, in the monastery library. We shake our heads at that, and rightfully we should. But sadly, for many Christians, the Old Testament has been equally neglected, even though it's there right in the front of our Bibles. If you ask some Christians how to find specific books of the Old Testament, they'll struggle to get there. I hope by the time we're done with this series, that will no longer be true for you. Often, 
I think it's neglected because as New Testament Christians, believers just don't understand it. They just don't see the connection between those Old Testament symbols and pictures and the faith of Jesus Christ. Yet, the Old Testament is equally important in the mind of God as the New. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 resonate in our ears. All Scripture is inspired by God, is breathed out by God, and is profitable. Remember that when Paul wrote that, he was referring primarily to the Old Testament and those books that had been written by that time, and of course, anticipating what God would do in the future. The Old Testament plays a vital role. One scholar has determined that when you look at the Old Testament and its uses in the New, there are some 250 direct quotations. There are 1,603 indirect references or allusions to the Old Testament and its history. The New Testament refers to Isaiah some 308 times, to Psalms 303 times, and there are only three New Testament books, without, or four rather, without direct reference to the Old Testament, John's three epistles and Paul's letter to Philemon. Over the next few weeks, we're going to survey the contents of the Old Testament. We're going to fly over the peaks and the valleys. We won't be able to make out all of the details, but by the time we're done, I hope that we'll have our arms around both the history and the message of the Old Testament. Now, for the sake of our study, I have broken our survey of the Old Testament into three parts. First part is the history of God's people. The second is the unfolding of God's redemptive plan in the Old Testament. And the third is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Of course, the second and third are closely related. But I want us to see, first of all, the flow of the history. I want you to understand how the Old Testament is structured and how it relates to itself. And then we'll look at its message in following weeks. But tonight, I want us to begin to look at the history of God's people. Now, when you look at our English Bible, our English Old Testament versus the Hebrew Bible, understand that there is essentially the same content. The English Old Testament has 39 books in your Old Testament. The Hebrew Bible has 22 books, but it's the same content. Why is there such a difference in the number of books? Well, there are two primary reasons. One is because the minor prophets, you know, those smaller prophets are grouped together as one book in the Hebrew Bible and called the Twelve. In addition, six groups of books are counted as one book where we divide them. And I've listed them here. The books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, we divide into parts one and two. In Hebrew, they don't divide them. You only have three books in Hebrew. The book of Samuel, the book of Kings, and the book of Chronicles. Ezra and Nehemiah are one book in the Hebrew text. Joshua and Ruth are also one book in the Hebrew text. And Jeremiah and Lamentations are one book in the Hebrew text. You recognize the English arrangement. We have the five books of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then you have books of history running from Joshua through Esther. You have poetry, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes, rather. And then you go to the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. By the way, they're major because of the length of the scrolls on which they were written, the length of the books, not because they're more important than the minor prophets. 
The minor prophets were simply short and small and were all written on one scroll. Hence, that's why they were grouped together as the twelve. So the minor prophets then follow. In the Hebrew arrangement, you can see you have the Torah, and that's where we begin. But then you have the prophets, the former prophets, as they're described, and the latter prophets. And following that are the writings, broken down poetically, uh, the megaloth, as it's called, and then the historical books finishing out the Old Testament of Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and both books of Chronicles. So that's how they differ in terms of the order and structure in which they occur. When you come to the New Testament, understand that Jesus refers to the Old Testament in two basic divisions. In the days of Christ, you had the law, the Torah, and then you had the prophets. That's everything else in the times of Christ. That's how it would have been considered. All right, so that gives you kind of the difference between the English and the Hebrew. With that in mind, let me give you a sweeping overview of Old Testament history. An overview, a timeline, if you will, of how the Old Testament shakes out. Initially, you have from 4,000, and we'll talk about that date in a moment, but that's the most conservative date for the creation. 4,000 to 2,100 is the period that's called universal dealings. God is dealing with the entire human race. That's from Genesis 1 to chapter 11. Then you begin the patriarchal period, roughly with Abraham's time, 2100, to the death of of Joseph in 1804, and that's covered in Genesis 12 to 50. That's followed, of course, by the period of the bondage in Egypt, 400 years of slavery. That's all described, that 400 years, in one chapter and a few verses, really, in that chapter, and that's Exodus chapter 1. Followed, of course, in 1445, 1446, by the Exodus, that begins the Exodus and that long period of time, the wilderness wanderings, 40 years in the wilderness after the time at Sinai. That is described for us in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy finishes with the children of Israel at the edge of the promised land, ready to go in under Joshua's leadership and take control of of the land of Canaan. That brings us then to the second part. After the period of time of the wilderness wanderings becomes the conquest and the division of the land under Joshua, and it's described for us in the book of Joshua from 1406 to 1390. After that period of time and Joshua's death, you remember the first generation after Joshua served the Lord as long as Joshua was alive and that generation was alive, the next generation did not serve God. And we enter the darkest period in Old Testament history, the period of the judges, when every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There was no central government in Israel, but rather there were regional judges that delivered the people from bondage from time to time. That period of time, that dark period of time, runs from 1390 B.C. to 1051, and it's covered in Judges and Ruth. Now, 1051 is a key date in Old Testament history because it's with that date that the monarchy begins. There is now a king in Israel. The monarchy is divided, as you can see here, into two parts. What's called the united monarchy, that's when the whole people of Israel are under one king. But there comes a time, you remember after Solomon's death, when Solomon's son was unwise, he listened to the young counselors and ended up dividing the kingdom, and there were now two separate parts of Israel under two different kings. That's called the divided monarchy. 
You can see the dates there. The United Monarchy is very easy to remember. It's 120 years. You see that from 1051 to 1031. 120 years, evenly divided, 40 years under Saul, 40 years under David, and 40 years under Solomon. And then you have the divided monarchy. That period of time is described for us, the monarchy, in Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. Of course, at the end of the divided monarchy, they're carried away captive. You have the exile from 605, the initial route of the people of Israel, to 538, and that time period, you have Daniel and Ezekiel giving us insight into what's going on with the people of God in Babylon. After the Babylonian captivity, you have the return with the edict of Cyrus in 538 B.C., and that return happens in three phases. We'll talk about when we get there, and those events are covered by Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Now, when you look at all of that, you say, well, what happened to all the prophets? I'll explain that in just a moment. Those are the historical books, and that's the flow of Israel's history. Again, look at it again. You begin with universal dealings, the patriarchal period, bondage in Egypt, the exodus and the wilderness wanderings, the conquest and the division of the land, the period of the judges, that dark period, followed by the monarchy, both united originally and then divided. They go into exile, and then they return from exile into the land. That's the flow of Old Testament history. Now, if you want, and some of you will do this and others of you will not, those of you who are teachers, I encourage you to consider this. If you will memorize these eight dates, you will know Old Testament history. You can figure from these eight dates everything else. First of all, if you Abraham in 2166, the Exodus in 1446, the monarchy begins in 1051. I said the kingdom is divided 120 years later in 931. Israel falls, that's the northern part of the kingdom, in 722 to the Assyrians. In 586, the southern kingdom called Judah falls to the Babylonians. And then in 538, after a period of roughly 70 years, we'll talk about how to figure that, you have Cyrus's decree to allow the Jews to repatriate the land and the return begins. And then in, five, in 420, the Old Testament events end. That's the Old Testament in one sweeping sort of view of what happens. Now, the writing prophets, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, so forth, as well as the minor prophets, they tend to cluster in their writing around the fall of Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Why is that? Well, because you have to put yourself back in time, and we'll do this when we get there, but let me give you an overview. If you lived in the ancient world, your army, when it was victorious, proved that your God was bigger and stronger than the God of the nation you defeated. So everything was tied to your God. Well, if you're the only true God and you're going to allow your people to be carried off in captivity, what do you have to do beforehand? You have to prophesy that it's going to happen. You're going to orchestrate it because of their sin so that when it happens, the, gods of the, or the people of the gods around them cannot say, Yahweh is not strong. He could not protect his people. And so the prophets write, if you will, to defend the reputation of God they prophesy that Israel is going to be carried off captive in order to justify that when it happens. 
the other nations cannot say it's because Yahweh could not defend his people. So that's a basic overview. We'll talk about all those things in detail. But I want us to start where we should start with the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. And again, our goal is to do a a historical survey to get our arms around the history. We'll come back and look at the message and the message of redemption as it weaves its way through here, but I want you to get sort of a history lesson, if you will. We start with universal dealings, Genesis 1 through 11. God here deals with the human race as a whole. The period covers from the creation to the call of Abram, almost 2,000 years. If we use the most conservative date for the creation of the world, let me explain why there are different dates for creation. There are two genealogies in Genesis, one in Genesis 5 and one in Genesis 11. Both of those genealogies purport to give us the flow of the record of the lives of the people that make up those generations. There is debate among good men. They disagree over whether those genealogies have gaps in them or not. Not that they're mistakes, they're not mistakes. If they're gaps, God intended to skip certain generations to highlight key names. But there are those who say that there are gaps and there are those who say there are no gaps. If you do not believe there are gaps in the genealogies in Genesis, then you have a creation date of about 4,000 BC. If you believe there are gaps in the genealogy record, then you can stretch those genealogies to about... 10,000, and there are even a few people who would stretch it to 20,000 B.C., but if you believe the Bible, there is no way you can push the creation date out any further than 20,000 B.C. But if you take the most conservative date for the creation of the world at 4,000 B.C., then you have 2,000 years in universal dealings, which is more than the rest of the Old Testament combined. If you take from the time of Abraham to the time of Malachi, that's only about 1,700 years. So you have 2,000 years of history at least, and maybe a lot more if you, don't believe, the, if you believe there are gaps in the genealogy, up to 20,000 B.C., you have a lot of time in 11 chapters. Now this section of Old Testament history is marked by four great events. In chapters 1 and 2, you have the creation. In chapters 3 to 5, you have the fall chapters 6 through 9, the flood, and chapters 10 and 11, the nations. That includes the judgment at Babel and the spreading of Noah's descendants across the face of the earth. We've studied the creation at great length, and again, I'm not going to go there, but I encourage you to listen if you weren't here for that. The fall we also studied together as we looked at the, the sinfulness of man, as we studied the doctrine of man. The flood we have not looked at in great detail, but You understand that great cataclysmic worldwide event followed by the spreading of Noah's sons. When you look at how they spread across the world, this gives you a rough picture of what happened after the flood. Essentially, you can see that Shem's descendants gathered in the area around the Persian Gulf and what are the modern Arab states. Ham's descendants gathered on the south side of the Mediterranean and down Uh, on both sides of the Red Sea, down into the Sinai Peninsula, and further down into the continent of Africa. And and Japheth's descendants were primarily up in the Asia Minor and the European area. That gives you sort of a wide sweep of where the three sons repopulated the earth after the flood. Now, this period of universal dealings ends with our meeting a man named Abram, who suddenly appears 
in the family of Terah. And with the mention of Abram, we enter the patriarchal period. It's from Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis chapter 50. It's known as the patriarchal age because it consists of four consecutive generations of a small clan in Israel, in the Middle East. Each generation is governed by the ruling patriarch. So this period is really, we could say, the stories of four people. If primeval history is four events, creation, fall, flood, and nations, then patriarchal history is the story of four people. Abraham in Genesis 12 to 24, Isaac in chapters 25 and 26, Jacob in chapters 27 through 36, and Joseph in chapters 37 through 50. That is the line through which God chose to make himself known. Now, why is it that we go from God dealing with humanity in general as a unit to God dealing with one man and his clan? Well, understand that in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, as God deals with man, the testimony that comes out of that dealing is that man's moral condition is clear and consistent. He is committed to rebellion. So in Genesis chapter 12, or chapter 12 and following, God takes a gracious step to provide men both individually and corporately with powerful testimony to his character and purposes. God, listen carefully, God will identify and raise up one man and his family through whom he will in a unique way put himself on display. That's God's intention. You see that even in the original calling of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And watch the end of this great call. And in you, Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God had a distinct saving purpose in identifying one man and his clan through which to put himself on display. Abram and his descendants become God's great object lesson in the world. They become God's witness nation of his greatness and his grace. And if you think this is not important to the Lord, understand that in chapters 1 through 11, you had 2,000 years, and in chapters 12 through 50, 290 years. There's a lot that God wants to say about his interaction with the patriarchs. God chooses one man and one family to whom he will bear a special relationship, and that is Abraham. We know nothing, by the way, about Abraham's first 75 years of life. And we know very little about his final 75 years of life. The greatest detail that we know about Abraham's life is from his 75th birthday to his 100th birthday, from his conversion until Isaac, the son of the promise, was born. So God comes to him and says, I want you to go forth from your country. Where did he come from? He came from Ur of the Chaldees. You remember your world history? Ur was located in Sumer, in Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia meaning the land between the rivers. It was composed, Sumer was, of 12 city-states, and Ur was the hub. 
It gave us, that great culture did, cuneiform, which was the earliest known form of writing. It was a highly cultured, cosmopolitan culture. And yet God tells Abram to leave. Why leave Ur? You could make an argument that that is the birthplace of civilization. Its influence is far and wide. Why would God have Abram leave Ur? Well, there are two reasons. First of all, because Deuteronomy tells us it was full of false gods and their worship. God wanted to insulate and isolate Abram from his ancestors because that was his past. He was a polytheist. He worshiped many gods. And when God calls him, he calls him out of that environment. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, An Aerial View of the Old Testament. Tom will have part two for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.